This is a time for um, uh, Dhamma discussion and uh, any questions that people have, so please uh, feel free to... Yes, you can wait for the microphone. Good afternoon. Um, you talked about um, wrong livelihood and you, you said the Buddha, uh, the Lord Buddha said that um, approved of people going into the military or you mentioned the military, the army. I'm just a little bit confused on that. If you're in the army and you're a Buddhist and you get commanded to go to war where you have to kill somebody, isn't that going against the precepts? Well, the, uh, hmm. the interesting thing is that the, the Buddha doesn't uh, name being uh, a soldier or being in the military as intrinsically lo wrong livelihood. And so, um, the, obviously, there's uh, th there's difficulties within that, uh, and um, uh, that uh, the precept against killing is obviously front center, you know, number one on the list. But uh, it's something to to um, uh, to consider that the and also in um, some countries that are sort of structured according to Buddhist principles then they, uh, there, there are very few countries that don't have any army at all, like Bhutan, Costa Rica, uh, but pretty much you know, every, uh, every nation has some kind of military force, but also that uh, some countries that are established on Buddhist principles, say, for example, like Thailand, they have a, a policy of non-aggression, so that the, the military is there to protect their borders uh, in principle, but they have a, a policy of not uh, not aggressing uh, against uh, other other countries or using the uh, unnecessary force. It's uh, uh, also what you have within. It's kind of interesting in Thailand that um, they have as a standard every ten years anybody in the military has three months paid leave to go into a monastery. So if uh, if you were a, a colonel in the Thai army. Every ten years, you get three months paid leave to go and be a nun for three months. So, uh, which people might think as total anathema, but there the principle being that if you're going to, if you need to have an army, better to have an army that's comprised of people who are honourable, who are responsible, and who are, um, uh, say, um, committed to standards of of, uh, of uh, uh, respect for life as much as possible. And so that um, that uh, even though in the, the kind of mindset that likes to have, well, either you know you're a, you're a good person and you're in the in the you know the in the one camp, or you're a bad person, you're in the other camp. It, it's it doesn't work that way. Uh, and so that the um, I obviously I didn't choose a military career myself. <laughs> I was an ardent pacifist as a layperson. And I was drawn towards monastic life. But what you have also, if, if you were a colonel in the in the Thai army, and then you had uh, your three months in the monastery, and you think, well, actually, I feel really uncomfortable pursuing my duties as a military officer, and I'd far rather stay in the monastery. You can resign your commission and stay in the monastery, and you would be respected for that. Yeah? And so that it would be, um, you know, those people who uh, are, you know, say. Uh, comfortable or who can live with that 
um, that sort of mixture of qualities of both having uh, a role in the military force and also having um, spiritual principles. You know, those people who can still live with that, then they, they, they form the army. Those people who say, no, I've had enough of this, I'm stepping out, like the Buddha did. <laughs> you know, he was also a soldier. He was, he was a Kshatriya prince. He was a, a warrior noble. So his whole education up to the time he was 29, he left the palace, was as a soldier. If you look at the scriptures, he uses all kinds of military analogies and military language in the way that he, the way that he speaks and teaches. And so that uh, he was a military person. But he stepped out of it in order to, to, uh, to develop um, his peace, <coughs> his way of, of peace. So that uh, that um, that mixture, whereby you know the, the Buddha say so he defines wrong livelihood as dealing in weapons, like selling weapons to to, um, to other people in order to, to kill. That's seen as uh, as wrong livelihood, but. Uh, being a, 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 in the military itself is not seen as intrinsically wrong livelihood. I don't know if that answers your question, but it's it's a you know, we we are we tend to think, particularly because we're in a, a country that doesn't have a Buddhist government or isn't run according to Buddhist principles. We haven't, as Buddhists within the Western countries, we haven't had to have those questions. You know, if you if you are running a country and you want to run a country on Buddhist principles, how do you do that? How do you protect your borders? How do you look after the welfare of your citizens if you're in uh, this is an island <laughs> but you know if, if Scotland uh, becomes independent and then they become aggressive towards England again <laughs> or the Cornish the Cornish declare you know unilateral independence and then how does uh, England defend its borders and we haven't had to deal with those questions in our local Buddhist groups in our monasteries right but maybe in a hundred years time we will have to and that uh, those those countries like you know, Thailand has borders with with Burma, with Laos, with Cambodia, with Malaysia, um, yeah, many of which they've had a lot of uh, uh, guerrilla activity or invasive forces crossing over. They've they've had to deal with those questions, and uh, so that that those are issues that um, societies have to to work with. And so it's kind of it's also interesting that. There's no place in the scriptures where the Buddha tells any of the, the, the leaders, like King Bimbisara or King Ajatasattu or King, um, uh, King Pasenadi or the Vajian Confederacy, he never says, you should disband your army. If you want to be my disciple, you should, you should uh, uh, wind up your military. He never says that to anybody. You know, he says, if you want to realize peacefulness or you want to, to be totally liberated, then you, you know, you follow this path, but he never tells the, the political leaders to to, to to wind up their military forces, which is a kind of interesting absence. And so, I mean, I'm not condoning militarism, but I'm just pointing out that um, the Buddha realized that people who were in the role of leadership had those choices to make, and that they while while they chose to be in the in the role of leadership, then that was the burden that went with it. And when he himself considered, there's, there's a very interesting little sutta where he's uh, sitting up in the Himalayas, meditating by himself, and then the, the question comes to his mind: I wonder if you, I wonder if you could govern, if you could be a political leader in a totally dharmic way. I wonder if you could do that. And then, of course, Mara comes along and says, "Yes, of course you could. You know, it'd be very easy for you. Someone of your wisdom and nobility and your skills, some, you, you, you could do it." 
And then immediately the Buddha realizes, no. <laughs> if you're a political leader, you have to imprison people, you have to sequester property. Uh, in, go, it goes with the job. That it's, impo it's impossible to govern in a way that's completely in tune with Dhamma. And so, that the, <clears throat> but then people who are in government, they can step out and join the monastery if they want. <laughs> they can step down from that. Just like his own um, cousin, Badia, um, no, but, uh, what was it? Bhagu, uh, that's right, uh, who was uh, one of the rulers of the Sakyans. And after he became a, a monk, then he was going around the monastery and, and saying, Oh, what bliss! Oh, what bliss! Oh, what bliss! And the other monks got worried about him, thinking, Oh, well, he used to be the king. And he's just lost in his fantasy world, remembering all of the, the women in his harem, all the, you know, the queens and his dancing girls. And, so he's lost in this fantasy world, dreaming about all his beautiful women that he used to have in his in his palace life, and uh, he's totally lost it. And he's supposed to be a monk now, and he's wandering around saying, "Oh, what bliss! Oh, what bliss!" And so then uh, they go to the Buddha and say, "We're really worried about him because he's just you know he stepped down from being the the king and of the Sakyans, and now he's just lost in this fantasy world." And the Buddha said, "Well, ask him to come and see me." And so he comes along and the Buddha says, so is it true that you're walking around the forest saying, oh, what bliss, oh, what bliss? He says, yes, that's true. He says, so what's the, what's the, uh, the reason why you're saying that? He says, well, when I was the ruler, I had armed guards in the throne room. I had armed guards outside the throne room. I had armed guards in the, inside the palace gates. I had armed guards outside the palace gates. I had arm, armed guards inside the city walls. I had armed guards outside the city walls. And still, all the time, I was terrified. I was in a state of fear and anxiety you know, with all of these people protecting me. And now, I have nothing. I live in my kuti in the forest and I have no money, I have no possessions and I have no fear. This is great. That's why I'm walking around saying, oh, what bliss, oh, what bliss. <laughs> so the Buddha said, okay, he's fine. You know. <laughs> so, um, that... Uh, it's a it's a it's a much more layered relationship to political leadership and the the role of the, the military and so on. I mean, we just uh, there's a, a a armed forces Buddhist group that uh, visited here. And actually, just uh, last week, there's a Sri Lankan fellow who's in the army asked if he could bring a group down from his his barracks to come and visit here. Um, he's an officer in the British army, and so there's this this relationship uh, whereby. Okay, you, you know, you've chosen to, sol to serve as a, a soldier or in the Navy or the Air Force or whatever. And, um, but yet you, you want to have a peaceful mind, yet you respect Buddhist principles. How do you bring those together? And like, uh, and I, I, I was, cause when I, I joined the Sangha, I had, I was very sort of vehemently pacifist and very kind of anti-military and I had a very black and white perspective on it. But then going to a country like Thailand and seeing how they operated, they said, well, yeah, your, your soldiers get three months paid leave in a monastery? What? You know, thinking it's like the total opposite. And they say, well, it's better to have wise, responsible, and mindful people rather than deranged egomaniac, e egomaniacs <laughs> and you know, people who are sort of selfish and reactive in the army. Far better <laughs> to have responsible and, and uh, thoughtful people who are, actually, who, who are handling all the weapons. The big issue, yes, Philip. 
Uh, on this same theme, surely the, the very important thing is motive, isn't it? I mean, whether you're, you're going out to, to, to kill somebody in order to gain something for yourself, or as part of, of, a, of a deliberate, aggressive act, or whether you're actually uh, trying to protect somebody or defend somebody, or even, even in an extreme case, um, perhaps killing a friend who is in, a des in desperate straits, there's no hope, you know, of, of, of him being actually saved. He's, he's very, very ill. He's perhaps, you know, and obviously dying. And there is no help whatsoever. And he asks you, you know, uh, could you possibly um, put me out of my misery? And you decide uh, consciously, I will, I will indeed put him out of his misery for, from, for, for all the right motives. Um, this surely shines a very strong light on, on the whole question of motive. Yeah. It's not the act itself, it is what is behind the act and what the motive is behind it. Yeah, very much. And also, I think the, not only the laws of most countries in the world, but also the, the Buddhist monastic rule reflects exactly that, that uh, intention and uh, motivation have, uh, are uh, a, um, if the mo most significant element within that. So. Uh, many people who um, uh, say have, have joined the uh, the military or in, engaged in that, um, their their motivation is often protection for their country or doing that or the, you know it's called uh, being in the services you know service, <laughs> the armed services. It's a it's actually casts itself in the form of of serving. Um, there obviously it's there's a lot of grey in there, and. Um, you know, the, it's very interesting spending time with Joseph Pabakro, who's uh, co-leading a retreat with me earlier in the year, who was a, a, a veteran from the uh, Vietnam War, who was a helicopter pilot in the American Army in Vietnam. And uh, he, yeah, he had a very um, a sensitive conscience, uh, and he can remember vividly and speaks quite directly about you know, the one time he knew he gave as the pilot, he gave the order to fire, and he knows that the gunner fired, and the guy on the on the ground went down. And he know he can remember that exact incident, and he, and he feels that sense of responsibility for that the death of that person in combat, and he's had to live with that for all these years. Um, and he's and very consciously having to work with that. It's twenty years as a monk, and then the, more than twenty years since then, working with that that memory and that. Uh, that act, but he also he says he, you know that the other people who were there in the military with him who were actively enjoying uh, pursuing the opportunity to kill others and to to cause harm, and that their their um, their mindset and their motivation and their their mind state was extremely different, and that uh, and also having to to deal with those around who were very trigger happy and and destructive. Well, it's a um, it's a, a, a complex area, but in, in terms of our conduct and the decisions that we that we make, it's really significant that the Buddha establishes the the precepts as precepts. They're, they're training guidelines, and it's not like if you act on the, if you act in this particular way, there's an automatic, you know, so, you know, this is an automatic result. the 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 precepts are training guidelines. Are like uh, guidelines for action rather than if you do this, this has this negative result, it has this positive result. It's not fixed. 
and things hinge a lot around uh, motivation, around your intention, uh, the time, the place, the situation, and also um, what you do with the um, the choices that you've made. So in a way, it's a it's a, a, a way of teaching and encouraging moral standards that demand a lot of personal responsibility. It's not like just a fear of punishment or reward from, or, or hope of reward from outside, but in a way taking responsibility for your own actions, like you're, you're, you're talking about the, the, the choice to end somebody's life because you want to put them out of their misery or they ask you to. Um, those are choices that somebody, uh, that people have to make or, or that they are put before people from time to time. But then you also have the responsibility of living with your choice. And so the, 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 the Buddha's standard in a way requires a lot more maturity from us and that sense of taking responsibility so that if we if we're making choices then we're accepting the results of those choices and that uh, and so, you know, many times choice, those kind of choices are not easy to to make but that's why it's not the kind of uh, black and white you know this is a this is a sin this is a, a, a this is good karma this is bad karma but it's like well as a basic principle refrain from taking life Take that as your standard. That's the Panati Samadhi I undertake the precept to refrain from taking the life of any living creature. Right. That's the line that I use. Now I have to live my life. <laughs> and so how do I then having that clear standard and that advice from the Buddha and then that reflecting my own disposition uh, in my heart of hearts, now how do I deal with this particular situation? What do I do here? So it's a guideline for action, and then we make our choices. Sometimes uh, tilting one side of the line, sometimes tilting another side of the line. But it's also it's up to us to to um, learn from the the results of the actions that we take, which is not condoning and it's not trying to be fuzzy in terms of moral standards, but in a sense taking responsibility for the actions that we 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 follow. There was a, a, I had a very interesting encounter many years ago with um, Air Chief Marshal Constantine. I think I might have talked about this um, a few weeks ago. Who was in bomber command in the Second World War. And uh, he was at RAF Halton. Uh, I was being operated on at the RAF hospital near here. It's like a very strange situation how a monk ends up hanging out with all these uh, Air Force people. <laughs> but I, I had this strange... Uh, and a growth on my neck that was uh, uh, they needed a specialist surgeon for. And while I was being waiting, waiting to be picked up from the hospital, this very distinguished old gentleman uh, came up and said, you know, um, do you mind if we had a chat? I said, certainly. And he sat down, introduced himself. And so he'd been second in command of the RAF, Air Chief Marshal Constantine, and was retired, he was in his 80s, and he was in for surgery as well. And he'd been part of Bomber Command. He was uh, the youngest um, Air Vice Marshal in the RAF. He was an Air Vice Marshal when he was 35. And he, he basically told me his life story of how he joined the Air Force in the 30s because it was a, a way to learn how to fly. And that was the cheapest way of getting to see the world. He came from a poor family, he wanted to see the world. How do you see the world? You learn how to fly. How do you learn how to fly when you haven't got any money? Join the Air Force. <laughs> He said he was so clueless that when he asked his, his commanding officer, sir, we're in a fighter squadron, yeah, but who are we supposed to be fighting? 
And so uh, the, he said that his, his commanding officer said, silly boy, the French, of course. <laughs> yeah, hadn't had a war with France for a few decades, so they, they must be up soon. So then, the, the, then things blew up in Germany, and then the Second World War began, and then he found he had a, uh, a great gift for leadership, and so he was promoted very rapidly. And so he, he became very uh, high in the um, bomber command and he organized the first thousand bomber raid over Germany. He, he organized the raid on Dresden. And uh, he spoke about that with great feeling. He said, we got a, uh, uh, he said, I received a telegram from 10 Downing Street. It said, Dresden, maximum impact. That was the orders. There's three words. Dresden, maximum impact. So you're in the middle of a war, you obey your orders. And so he said, since then, there's been you know, en enormous um, negative feedback on that. But we were in the war. That was the, or that's the orders that came from the top. So we uh, obeyed the orders. And uh, it, was, it was very poignant speaking with him. I, I, there I was, a young Buddhist monk. He didn't know me from, from, uh, you know, from Adam. I was just a total stranger. But he was... Just, and it was kind of strange how nobody else was around. We're sitting in the... Uh, in the the lounge area of the hospital, and we were just the two of us alone for about three hours, as he he sort of told me his whole story, and uh, he said that after the war was over, he was because he was so senior and so young, they started taking stripes off him again, so he got demoted, <laughs> um, and they didn't know what to do with him, so they gave him a plane, and he said, so I spent two years flying to every place that I bombed. I went to visit everywhere in Germany that we bombed, one after another. And he said, after that, that time, he said, I, I made a, a vow that I would spend the rest of my life preventing this from ever happening again. And so that's what he'd been doing for the, for the remainder of his life, the, 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 the sheer horror of the effects of his actions. He allowed that in to the extent that he could. And then... And he, and he was very, he was very proud. He said, you know, 40 years without any war. This was before the last Balkan conflict. 40 years with no war in Europe. This is the longest period of peace that's ever been in, in, uh, in Europe, you know, in, uh, in 10,000 years. <laughs> 40 years of, of peace in Europe. And so it was quite uh, marvelous, really, meeting him because up until that point, I'd had a very, uh, sort of rigid view of military people. And so, oh, you know, they're all, uh, uh, violent warmongers and and yet meeting this fellow seeing how each increment of his life had made sense and next uh, and then one thing after another after another and the next thing he knew he was organizing these huge bombing raids destroying the lives of thousands and thousands of people with his name on it his, uh, his responsibility but yet you could see there was he was an honorable person and a person who had had been intending the good but swept up in the karma of a war then that's what he ended up finding himself doing. But then having done that, and having seen you know, far more than, than you know, say, Joseph Bavacaro being responsible for one, you know, one particular death in Vietnam, he was responsible for thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people dying. But he'd taken the painfulness and the, 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 the kind of violence of that karma to turn it around and, and use the energy of that to motivate him for the rest of his life to doing what he could to preventing war on that scale you know, ever happening again. I thought, well, you know, good for you. And uh, 
yeah, he was he was far from being an arahant. <laughs> but I, I thought that uh, how skillfully he'd tried to take that the 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 events of his life and the karma he created and try to turn that around to to use that as a an agency for good so that the that um motivation for um for benefiting people could have a um a very uh, kind of active and positive result so Maybe a question on a different subject? Yes, there's a hand there. Well, I like how you started off with saying, you know, Friday, longing for Friday and the end of a retreat and everything like that. But I've been exploring a little bit about um, my pleasure, you know, when you do something for somebody and they say, they say thank you. Well, And... Um, just trying to really mean it when I say it at work, you know, I, I, I'm fortunate to have a really nice employer. And so then they say, well, thank you for all your work. And Or if I do something out of normal hours, rather than thinking, oh my God, you know, it's my time. And I just try to um, turn it into my gratitude practice. And, you know, so if I do something extra, because they are such a lovely people and they, give me a job and, you know, a salary and all that. Um, and especially when I do boring work, <laughs> <laughs> like dusting behind a bathtub, I try to turn that into my gratitude practice. And, mm -hmm. and I find that the boring things, they go a little bit quicker when I do that way. Yeah, well, boredom is directly related to the sense of self. If there's no sense of self, boredom is impossible. As, as yeah, as. that's good. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I shall reflect on that yeah. next time when I dust next week. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. But also, it's it's good to uh, that having that principle of meaning it because we can be very uh, we can fall very easily into just uh, sort of meaningless ways of of greeting and c communicating with each other, and um, that uh, just having that inquiry of well, do I really mean it? And I say, good to see you. I really mean, <laughs> um, and that uh, just having that that uh, degree of um, sort of inquiry and uh, and a sense of inclination towards sincerity, it's it's very helpful. Also, um, it, it can be incline us towards more honesty when it, you know if if someone says, um, yeah, uh, "How are you doing?" We might be more inclined to say. Well, actually, I'm having a really rubbish day. <laughs> Rather than, I'm fine, I'm fine. Yeah, I'm fine. Yeah. And that uh, we don't mean it at all. And uh, I mean, uh, I know we're English, well, most of us uh, are living in England, so we're, we tend to sort of hide behind a veneer of everything's fine, uh, especially Southern English. Uh, but uh, it, it can be mu much more helpful to be uh, uh, sincere about how we're feeling or seeing things and uh, to be ready to uh, be more out front about that. So I'm at work or I'm doing my meditation practice and I'm having that moment of I can't wait till it's finished or till the, you know, that sort of when's the real piece, when's the work over so I can relax, that kind of feeling. So what can I do? I'm behind my computer, 
I've got three hours to go. Um, what can I do in the moment to um, dispel the I or the me that's causing the boredom or the lack of peace? Well, the, one of the, the most direct things that we can do is just to name that feeling. Like, this is the, uh, I've just looked at my clock and, oh, you know, oh, oh no, there's three hours to go feeling. <laughs> but that, that's what, uh, just naming that what's there, that rather than, um, buying into the, to the, the feeling that's there, just saying, oh, this is the, oh no, three hours to go, uh, it's, it's that, uh, oh no, it's three hours to go feeling, I wonder if I can just go and look at some pictures of cats on the internet instead of this, this boring uh, job I'm supposed to be doing. It's that feeling. So even, even just that little bit of, of stepping back and saying, oh, this is, just, this is the feeling that's here in this moment, then what that does is it awakens that, that, sort of, that wisdom in us, that watchfulness that says, oh, right, this is actually just a passing mood. I don't have to believe the content of this. I don't have to believe that I can't stand this or I, you know, I, I need this to be over. To, well, what's actually here is the, this is the, I need this to be over feeling. That's what's here in this moment. And that, at least I find for, for myself, when I, I, I do that, um, there's a, a immediately a, a shift of perspective. That it's going from being a, sort of a true representation of reality to, oh, it's just a, this is just a passing feeling. And that simple act of, of naming it as a way of keeping it in perspective. But it's all you have to remember to do that. <laughs> so that's the most, the most uh, obvious thing. Also, um, using the mindfulness of the body, and so that oftentimes, particularly if like, we're restless or, or uh, uh, and uh, in feeling impatient and those kind of um, moods, the mind, the attention gets very caught up with the with the mental state. But that mental state is also fed by the body, and how the and how we're we're sitting or how we're holding the the body. And we often miss how much the the uh, the body influences the mind state. So. Just taking a moment while you're sitting at your desk, and, uh, just to bring your attention into the body, and just ask yourself, "How do I feel? How does my back feel? How do my shoulders feel? My hands, my stomach, my legs?" Yeah. And noticing what tension there is, like in your face or your shoulders or you know your body and anywhere, and then just letting yourself relax, just letting, just just taking a few seconds, just to. To, to notice, oh right, yeah, my jaw is really tight, you know, <laughs> or my you know, my my hands are also clenched. Okay, just and then just taking literally five or ten seconds just to let the attention sweep through the body, let yourself relax. All right, and then it, it can have a very distinct effect on the on the mood because we we live particularly in the work world when we're taken up with activity and communication. Uh, it's often very heady, and we're living in that um, realm of, of producing something or engaging with people, doing something. So we're kind of easily living from the sort of, from the chin up, <laughs> and we uh, and we miss the 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 rest of the body. The body is just the thing that keeps your chin off the 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 chair, you know, <laughs> or the the keyboard. And and yet the body has a very 
direct influence on our mind state. And so just using that um, mindfulness of the body and bringing that into attention, letting yourself relax, letting us just letting the body settle and soften. And then well, it just for five or ten <coughs> seconds even, it's okay, now how does it feel? And more often than not, oh, well that's different. <laughs> but we don't notice the influence that it's had because we're, the, all the, the attentions that are going out through our eyes and our ears and and uh, we, we kind of miss what's what sort of the rest of the body is, is uh, the influence is having. Uh, thank you for the talk. And um, uh, the examples you gave about the lady who two and a half million contract uh, put turn it down, and also the mother with the child, the estate agent. Um, don't you need to be quite, at least your basic needs need to be satisfied in order to be able to do that, or to be quite awakened person in order to go like to a place where it's very corrupted in order not to be swayed away by all of that, and in order to be able to stay strong and follow the precepts. Well, that's why we practice. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's true. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, the, um, the more that you're surrounded by people who are unlike-minded, the harder it is. Mm. You know, if the others around you are all kind of <laughs> scrabbling for their, their piece of the pie, um, then it's harder. But that's why we practice. That's why, it's a, in a way, it's a, it's a path. It's something that has to be developed. And it takes an ongoing effort to, to follow that path. Because, but also, when we, we, we lose it, when we, we don't follow the noble way, and we do kind of work a little number to, um, to get our self-advantage, um, then even if we've done that, we've broken a precept, or we, we've wangled some figures to tilt things in our direction, then just to, to be ready to look at that and say, okay, no, well, now, I've, I've, I got away with that, but how does it feel? Not to try and make a guilt trip on yourself, but okay, now, how does that sit in my heart? Do I feel pleased about that? Am I, would I tell my mum and dad about that? <laughs> uh, how, does that how does that sit within my heart? Um, is that something to rejoice in? And then letting yourself fully acknowledge what's there. And so... The, the, in a way, it's like I'm not condoning breaking the precepts, but if we have broken a precept, like if we've lied to someone, or we've acted in a, an indulgent way, or we've deceived our partner, or we've, we've um, you know, done some deception and, 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 uh, and uh, uh, defrauded some, uh, some money for us and got some money for ourselves, then, you know, we've broken, a, we, we recognize, yeah, I broke that precept. Now, what's the result of that? Now, uh, if you if you uh, look, if you go into the temple, you see on the either side of the temple doors, you have these two figures, these kind of devatas, in sort of classical Thai paintings. Well, they are uh, well; those paintings represent uh, as Hiri and Otapa, and they are the guardians of the world, uh, Lokapala. And Hiri and Otapa are they are our conscience, so they're regarded as like the protectors and guardians of your heart, the guardians of the world. So. 
the hiri is that sense of conscience. So if I tell you a lie, then it's that how. It's that painful feeling in the heart, that knowing, well, that's not true. I'm, I'm, I'm lying to, to her. Or uh, I'm taking advantage of you. Or I'm cheating you. Then that, that, that hiri is that sense of, that's not very beautiful. Or that's not, that's not actually true. Or, um, that's really not yours to take. And it's a, um, it's a painful feeling. It's like physical pain protects the body. Hiri protects your heart. It's the, that's, and so sometimes it gets translated as a sense of shame, and shame can be a very loaded word. But it's, in, in Buddhist uh, psychology, hiri is a, uh, a great spiritual virtue. So the more awakened you are, the more hiriotapa you have. <laughs> so the worse you feel. You know, if, if you are, you know, the more spiritually mature someone is, just the, the, if they do something that is, hurtful to another, or they act in a deliberately selfish way, it really hurts. <laughs> Whereas someone who's less spiritually mature, they can act that way and be totally shameless. It doesn't immediately get through. So it's a kind of pain, it's like being thin-skinned, but it's useful, <laughs> because it's like that signal that says, you're getting very close to the edge of the, of the precipice here, step back, or, like, or, that, uh, or you've gone over the precipice. <laughs> And so that is a, it's painful, but it's a useful pain. And then otapa is, um, well, there's different ways that they're described, but I think the most helpful way that the two is otapa is when you see unskillfulness outside you. Like if you see somebody like, um, hitting their child in the supermarket or somebody, um, or if you're driving, driving along and someone, you know, cuts in front of you. And um, you uh, and then they're, they're kind of you know rude and, and, and aggressive. That 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 in us which recoils from that, it's like, oh, what, what an idiot! Or how could they do that? That in us which recoils from the unskillful actions outside is otapa, that which sort of is pained by the unwholesome, seeing others harming others or acting violently or cruelly or indulgently. That which says, well, that's disgusting. Why would you want to do that? That's otapa. Again, it's a painful feeling, but it, it protects us. It kind of helps us to draw away from situations that are are, are dangerous or unwholesome or unskillful. That, um, so those are, are the lokapalas, they're the guardians. That's why they're kind of at the temple doors. <laughs> so they, they're like, but they're psychological qualities. And so that... Um, when we have, as I said, I was saying to, to Philip, his, to his question, that the, the, the precepts are not like moral diktats, like you must, you know, thou shalt, like sort of biblical commandment. They're not commandments. They're like, it's, uh, it's helpful to have a standard of not taking the life of any living thing. You will benefit, others will benefit. That's, uh, that's the most skillful standard. If you transgress that, if you if you go across that, if you spray the green fly and you kill them, yeah, or if you um, you know you deliberately take uh, takes uh, the life of of another being, then it's the the heriotopa is that painfulness of like, well, did I really need to kill the green fly, or that person asked me to switch off the life support system, yeah, they asked me to do it, but how do I feel about that, yeah, what what's here in my heart? And so that then it's uh, the, the precept it helps to clarify 
those areas where it's it's tender and that they they mark a clear delineation of okay you are advised to stay this side of the line <laughs> but if, if you go across that line then painfulness is going to follow but the choice is up to us and the important thing is to learn from the, the choices that we make and they're taking responsibility for our actions sometimes the, the things that we do that are painful are deliberate you know we, we have done something on purpose sometimes it's because we were unconscious you know we we were involved in a uh, a traffic accident or we you know we contributed to some kind of um, disaster that we had no intention to hurt anybody but because of some the lack of mindfulness or, or not paying attention we, we caused uh, uh, someone someone to be harmed or something to be you know damaged or broken that's irreparable and that's painful to remember that but it's also you're not glossing over that but you're also recognizing well that happened and I have to live it like, like Joseph having joined the US Army and become a helicopter pilot and going to Vietnam and then well, he he was in that he was involved in it there, there's a result there's an effect and so what do you learn from the effects that have happened or, or um, there was a many years ago there was a woman who who came here who um, spoke about how she she took a, um, her her kids and uh, some of their friends to the, to the beach one day and she was the responsible adult and her niece got swept away by the by the uh, the tide and drowned and she said it took her 10 years to of, of having to live with that that she just you know for that the first period of time she hated herself and she was just begging for forgiveness and felt terrible and couldn't acknowledge it and and then trying to, to work with that and the very fact well whatever i do with it it happened so do i create more uh, alienation and insecurity and, and negativity in my life on account of that do I pretend it didn't happen or do I find a way to acknowledge that and work with that? That was stupid, I was unmindful, it was my fault. But I can't bring her back. So how do I work with that? What do I learn from that? And how can I use that to bring benefit to myself and others from now on? And so that's a, you know, the, the skillful use of, of, uh, of action. And so even when we make mistakes or we're in difficult situations and we have to make compromises, and think well this is really regrettable i don't want to be con contributing to this situation but here it is that even though that things might be regrettable and that we might do things that are uh, are causing harm that doesn't mean those things are lost we can still take the painfulness the energy in a way of that uh, the painfulness of the situation we can and we can redirect we can use that energy to help us to wake up and to bring benefit to ourselves and, and others and so that so like um yeah the one of the most obvious examples in this in the scriptures is angulimala who was a mass murderer you know and so he became an arahant um and uh <clears throat> he couldn't forget what he'd done and the way he'd lived as a bandit it was still there and he couldn't ex he didn't excuse it but also he he learned how to, to digest that and also to to uh, accommodate that and to fully acknowledge the regret that was there because of having lived in such a, a drastically unskillful and, and violent way and yet could still that didn't obstruct his enlightenment 
Thank you. So I think on that note, we've wandered past four o'clock, so that's, I think, enough for today. Could go on for a long time, but let's leave it there. So go well. Uh,